welcome back to our study. And um, we're still looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 1. And then we'll just briefly mention the qualities of an elder that we went over in the last study. And then we'll pick up from there. So in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we'll be drawing, of course, also on Titus 1. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, if we go over to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accursed, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And oh, dear God, what a standard you hold up before us. For those who are elders, for those who aspire, Lord, to that office. Dear Father, please help us. We are always so weak, so in need of grace. Help us hold to your word, to be biblical, to demonstrate the life of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit through not only correct doctrine, but correct living. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, going back to 1 Timothy 3 and looking at Titus also, uh, we looked at, first of all, something very important in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So the first thing, as we pointed out before, is that a man must aspire he must earnestly desire to be an overseer. I've been in some places uh, where the pastors and the churches act almost with a type of hyper authoritarianism, uh, sending out people to the mission field uh, who weren't even didn't even feel like they were called. But the church told them it is the will of God because it's what we've decided. Well, that's not found in Scripture in Second Corinthians chapter chapter eight. Um, Paul uh, made a public appeal for someone to go to Corinth and he said God put an earnestness in the heart of Titus to go. So 
A man must aspire, he must strongly desire to be an overseer. But now, that's not enough. I've always told my sons, you can aspire to be a brain surgeon, but that doesn't mean that you should go operate on someone right now. Because with the aspiration comes also the qualifications. We must qualify. And so Paul sets before us here in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 the qualifications that are required if a man is to take up the office of an overseer. Now, something that's very important from the rest of Paul's epistles is that although a man must self-judge, he must judge himself to see if he has these qualifications, and not just once, but daily, but uh, that's not enough either. These qualifications need to be witnessed in the li- or witnessed to uh, in the life of the church by the church itself. And I think that's very, very important because oftentimes you and I um, oftentimes can have a very um, distorted view of our qualifications. And that's why it's good to uh, submit our lives to others that they must also examine us. And the word that is used in in 1 Timothy 3 with regard to deacons that applies also to elders is the word dokimazo, which is the testing of metals to determine their purity or to determine their quality. In the same way, um, an elder must be, be tested. Now, we went through certain qualifications. He must be above reproach which um, is found in verse 2 and in Titus 1, 6, and 7. Now, something that does not mean he must be perfect, but it must mean that when you look at these different categories in his life, there is no reason for rebuke because of ongoing failure. Now, all of us can fail to some degree and will fail to some degree in, in all of these things. But if the failure is an ongoing trait, then we are not above reproach. Then he goes on, must be the husband of one wife. This is so very, very important. You know, if a man can't, as we're going to see, manage his own family, how can he manage the family of God? If he can't take care of his own bride lovingly, nurturingly, then he cannot take care of the church. And then he must be temperate. The idea is that there's no extremes in his life. He's not overly controlled by passions. He must be prudent. There's the idea here of of being wise or being sound of mind. He must be respectable. He must act in a respectable way. There was a brother that I know that I had to talk with uh, a few years ago. Um, Is he sincere? Very sincere. He lives as a missionary pastor. Um, is he a fun person to be around? <laughs> he really is. He has a wonderful personality. But he would joke so much that there was something of he lost his respectability. You know, Spurgeon was sometimes, um, people would criticize him for his humor in the pulpit. But it wasn't a clownishness in the pulpit. Uh, there needs to be a joy about us. There needs to be something winsome about us. And humor has its place. But we're not comedians. Everything's not a joke. And uh, we should not only um, 
minister in a way that is respectable, but we should live in a way that is respectable. We should dress in a way that's respectable and talk in a way that is respectable. We should know how to eat <laughs> uh, respectfully. Um, every aspect of our life, our demeanor in the pulpit ought to be a demeanor that is res commands respect. Even the way we dress is very important. Now, not everyone has to dress like a 60-year-old, like me, but I will tell you something. When men my age try to dress like hipsters, uh, they, they lose respect. Um, and, and so we, we want to do those things that are not faddish. You know, I don't know how it is in the business world now, but there was a time when when you dressed, you dressed a certain way. And we were told in business school that it was a time where, you know, collars were a bit broader and things like that. And I remember professors saying, what you need to do is dress with a classic wardrobe. Because if you go in there with big collars and, and dressed in the fashion, it, it kind of shares that um, you're, you're malleable. It's easy to influence you. You're going to go with the crowd. Instead of dressing in a classical manner that demonstrates stability, that you are constant, that you are not moved by the forces outside of you. Now, there's some truth to that. And so we need to be respectable. Also, the idea of hospitable. Now, in the New Testament time, this was extremely important. Why? Because so many Christians were, um, well, they were suffering from persecution. They were cast out of their homes. They were poor. But it also applies, as in 3 John, to traveling missionaries where hospitality was offered to them. Paul was offered hospitality often, and he saw the great importance of it. But it just doesn't refer to having people over to your house to stay for a while. It can mean just simply having people over to your house for dinner. Um, it, it, it is amazing, isn't it? That we're called upon not just to be good theologians, but to be hospitable. And in the Middle East, even today, um, eating with someone meant means a great deal means a, a great deal. I was preaching uh, a few years ago in the Middle East, and I was preaching in this strong Arab Muslim uh, community. And after I got through preaching, I was very hungry. And I said, you know, I'd like to go somewhere and eat. And they said, well, you know, you're going to kind of attract attention when you walk into the restaurant. And um, I remember walking in, and it was just like a movie. Everybody stopped. And they all turned around and they looked at me. And uh, I smiled and said, okay, look, I'm an American, but I'm hungry and I love Middle Eastern food. And it was quiet for a few seconds and I thought, oh boy, I'm in trouble. And then this big, very large Middle Eastern, I guess, Arab man, he slammed his hand, I think, on the table or on his thigh and laughed with all his might, and by the end of the night, almost everybody in the restaurant was sitting around my table and we were all eating and laughing. And, and my whole point is that it's so important in Middle Eastern culture 
to eat together, to spend time together. And um, it's a shame that in the church, uh, even when we want to do this, because sometimes in a large city there's distance and traveling and everything and everyone is so busy that it makes it hard sometimes to practice hospitality. But it, it brings with it a great, great blessing. Then after hospitality, of course, we talked about teaching, teaching the word of God. And uh, before we go there, let me I, I pointed out something to to my brethren today here at the office and uh, hold your place. And I just want you to go for a moment to the book of Acts. Chapter six. Um, if you were to ask me, Brother Paul, what do you think is the greatest moment of danger for the early church? The greatest moment of peril when all could have been lost? Would it have been the persecution of Nero? Uh, would, it ha would it have been heresy, the Arians? What would it have been? And I, my answer is chapter 6 of the book of Acts. The widows were not being cared for properly, and it doesn't seem that it was because of prejudice, but a lack of organization more than anything. And I think at that moment, the church was in its greatest peril because the care of widows and orphans is extremely important to God. As a matter of fact, there's a in, in Deuteronomy, if some the people didn't care for the widow, God said they were basically accursed. And so these uh, early believers who were Jewish knew the importance of caring for widows. It's important. But here's the problem. The apostles may have been tempted to lay aside prayer and the ministry of the word to take care of these orphans or these widows. Now, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Are they too proud? Well, the priority in scripture is that the kingdom advances through the preaching of the word. And the only reason that the Jewish people exercise such compassion towards widows is because the word of God commanded them to. And they understood that. You see, if you could only see human history, that everywhere true Christianity has been preached, there's been compassion for the poor, compassion for the needy. And where it has not been preached, that compassion doesn't exist. I mean, right now in my own country, they're debating the virtue, believe it or not, or the vice and virtue of not only abortion, but of leaving a child to die after it is born. That's anti-Christian, but it is very pagan. And so taking care of the needs of God's people is extremely important, but never at the expense of taking ministers of the gospel, proclaimers of the gospel away from the gospel. Now, let me share with you something that I believe is very important. One of the things hurting the church today is that many, many ministers are doing the work of deacons because the office of deacon has not been appreciated it has not been exalted. Many times men who were unfit have been made deacons. 
Sometimes men who are very fit to be deacons have not been trained biblically by the elders. I cannot tell you how important administration, leadership, helps, and service these gifts are to the church. These gifted people enable the preachers to have time to do what? What they're supposed to be doing. Prayer and the ministry of God's word. So an elder is supposed to be able to teach. Everyone who is an elder should be able to teach. We touched a little bit on this last time. That doesn't mean that all have to have the same powerful gift of proclamation. But every elder needs to be able to explain in clear conscience and with clarity the great truths of Scripture. That's why I think I mentioned this last time. I don't agree with the idea of I'm the preaching elder or he's the teaching elder or I'm the head elder. I don't agree with that. Um, I believe there is a parity in elders and I believe that if you're an elder, you're an elder. There's no junior elders. So let's go on now. After uh, able to teach in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9, we have not addicted to wine. 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7. Now, the word here um, is translated from the Greek noun, which literally denotes one who stays near wine. <laughs> or wine is his companion. Um, the word refers to a heavy drinker or drunkard. It may also include those who frequent drinking establishments or drinking parties. The elder must not even give the appearance of one who is addicted to, or as the King James says, given too much wine. Now, it is true that there is no prohibition against drinking a glass of wine. That, that is true. Unless... It's done in such a way that it makes a weaker brother stumble. Yet there are also so many warnings in Scripture about those who tarry long over wine, who are influenced by wine, who need wine to make it through the day. You know, so when someone says, you know, how do you make it through the day? And you say three glasses of wine. Uh, that's not the speech of a pastor. Not at all. And I've heard that before. But that's not the speech of a pastor. And I think that anything that has to do with a substance that can become addictive, one needs to participate in it with the greatest of, of care. And again, I cannot point to scripture and say that it is sin to drink wine unless in doing so, you somehow offend or act in a way that is not demonstrating love. But I can tell you it is a sin to be drunk. And I can tell you it is a sin to bring any shame upon the gospel because of drinking or because of speaking much of drinking. And so we have to be very, very, very careful here. Now, the next one is not pugnacious, 1 Timothy 3.3 3 and Titus 1.7. Now, this, um, this noun literally denotes a striker. 
okay? In, um, in mixed martial arts, you have basically two different forms of fighting. You have grapplers and you have strikers. Grapplers are the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys from the land of David down there, David Romer. Um, you have the, the grapplers. They take you to the ground and they're going to strangle you. Uh, strikers are those who are going to punch and kick you. And that is the word here. But also keep in mind, we shouldn't be wrestlers either. <laughs> but we should not be strikers. Figuratively, it, it refers to a contentious, quarrelsome, or even a violent person, a bully. It is translated violent in several translations in the ESV and the New King James and the NIV. The word pugnacious is translated from the Latin verb pugnare, which means to fight. And that's translated from the word that means fist. So we can see it's someone who is willing to fight at the drop of a hat that actually enjoys fighting. Now, before I was a Christian, I knew guys like that. They not only would not back down from a fight, they were looking for one. I mean, they went out at night hoping that they would get in a fight. It was their hobby. It was their recreation. And, um, but I also know people like that theologically, doctrinally, in the ministry. Uh, they are constantly looking for a fight. Now, the scripture makes it clear that there are some times when we, well, we must fight. But we shouldn't be looking for one nor should we delight in one. Even when I have had to fight, I want to tell you, it, it's, it's ended sorrowfully. It's not something that we should seek out, that we should desire. Um, the elder must not be given to quarreling or strife. He must not be a bully physically, but he must not be a bully intellectually. And I know people like that. Or I have known people like that. You can't beat them in an argument. It doesn't even matter if they're wrong. You still can't beat them. They're just too smart. And we should not uh, be a bully emotionally. Many people who will come to church and come under the counseling of a pastor, they are struggling emotionally. Many of them are fractured. Many of them are broken. You need to be very, very, very careful. Very careful. Especially in your counseling. They should not see you as the answer man. In the minute details of their life, you shouldn't be telling them what they should be doing. When someone comes to you with questions, you should answer with scripture. And where scripture is silent, you need to be silent. You can give certain advice, but you always need to be very, very careful that they do not see you as some great authority figure and just follow you because you said it. Um, there is a sense in which if you are a qualified elder, people should respect you. But people should not follow you as though you were some infallible source of God's knowledge. And there are some areas where you need to be silent. 
There are also some areas where you need to recognize it's not your realm of authority. You're not going to enter into a family situation and take authority. You can give counsel, but you're not the authority in that family, and you need to respect that. And so we need to be very, very careful. Diotrephes is an example of a pugnacious leader. Let's just go there for a moment to, uh, to 3 John. In verse 9, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. He loves to be first. He loves to control. He loves to have knowledge that no one else has. So that he can control the pieces of the puzzle. He says, Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now, you don't have to accept everything everyone says. But John is speaking as an apostle here that Diotrephes has set himself above the apostolic tradition, which in our case would mean he leads even setting himself above the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that he's contradicting the word of God as much as it means that um, he's speaking where the word of God is silent. He's driving and leading people according to his own opinions. And that is extremely dangerous. And in verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. Well, we got someone coming also. He's not an apostle. He's the apostle. His name is Jesus Christ. And when he comes, what will he do? He'll call attention to our deeds. But when he does, there will be no chance to, to make a change. It will already be done. Our race will have been run. So we need to, be, need to be very, very cautious. Like I said, we need to stand for the truth. But a man who is always fighting, everything's a battle and he seems to delight in it. This kind of man does not need to be a pastor. Uh, I've lived uh, long enough, and sometimes when I've come down from a pulpit, people will come up and ask all kinds of questions. But sometimes you can detect when someone is not asking a question in order to be taught, they're asking a question in order to find something wrong with you. They're trying to find a crack to fight about. Something where they can catch you unawares. And, and you can spot that kind of spirit pretty quickly. We don't want to be that way. There are men that I greatly respect and that I have learned a great deal from. But I would not agree with them in everything. But when I meet them, in time we may talk about the things where we disagree. But I'm not going to meet them in order to fight. Are to talk about everywhere they're wrong and I'm right. So be very careful. Now, in verse 3, he follows by saying, not pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. Now, the word gentle is from a Greek adjective, which denotes, of course, mildness or graciousness. 
It also has the idea maybe of, of forbearance. That you, you don't jump on every insult and attack because someone hurt you. You don't jump every time somebody says something wrong and jump on them and shame them. You're forbearing. You're, you're, you're gentle. Remember this, I heard this testimony of these three men who were with, um, they were together and someone came up and started talking to them who was from a kind of marginal Christian group. And that person said something that wasn't altogether correct. Well, the two younger ministers deferred to the older minister who just kept explaining the gospel. And when they got done, they said to him, why didn't you jump on that? I mean, she was wrong there and you should have just jumped on that and corrected it and showed her where she was totally wrong. And he said, well, that wouldn't have been very Christian. <laughs> and of course, there is times when we need to point out someone's wrong. This young lady didn't even understand the gospel. So he wasn't going to fight about minor details just because he found a chink in her armor. He wasn't going to shame her in front of everyone else. He was going to share the gospel with her. Now, again, there are times when we must point out that something is wrong. But we want to be men who are gentle. It is the very opposite of pugnacious in first in Titus chapter three, verse two, it is associated with maligning no one, being peaceable and showing consideration or courtesy to all. Showing consideration. Now, what is one thing that every human being has? To which we can show consideration. Well, every human being, there is still something of the image or likeness of God in them. James is very clear on that point. No matter how fallen a person is, there is still something of the image of God in them. And that in itself demands respect. So if you're going to a man who is on who in a few minutes is going to be executed for terrible crimes of murder and genocide. You would still go in and appeal to that man. You would want that man's salvation. Wouldn't you? You would still appeal. Why? Because this is not a rock or a dog or a fish or a tree. This is a man made in the image of God. Now, of course, there's a balance to that, and only wisdom can help us in that area. There are some men that after admonition, they just have to be left to themselves. You can pray for them. But in time also, there are men that must be rebuked, must be disciplined, must be put out from the fellowship. But even that has a purpose in it, that they might come back broken, Repentant, confessing their sins. So we want to be uh, showing consideration or courtesy to all, as the ESV has it. This does not mean that an elder will never speak a hard word or will never exhort or will never rebuke. It means that his character and demeanor are marked by gentleness 
graciousness and forbearance. His gentle spirit, as in Philippians 4, 5, is known to everyone. Now, again, I want to throw the other side on this. When Jesus made a whip and beat those men that had turned the house of his father into a den of money changers, he did not look very peaceful. So there was a moment there where there was nothing but righteous anger, and it was frightening. But if you look at the full course of our Lord's life, you see that he was a man of peace and he sought peace. And even when he reacted in anger, he reacted in anger for the glory of God and also for the benefit of those who were at the end or the brunt of his anger. So gentle, also peaceable in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. It denotes a person, again, who's not contentious or quarrelsome. Have you seen how often this comes up now? Not pugnacious, that's negatively. Positively gentle, positively peaceful. Now, why do I think these three are kind of put together? In the ministry, you are going to come into so many conflicts. You are going to deal with so many troublesome persons. You are going to be slandered. Um, they're not just going to talk about the faults you really do have. They're going to make up more faults. You are going to be stabbed in the back. There are so many things that are going to happen to you. And so in that, you can become pugnacious. You can throw aside peaceable. You can say, I'm no longer going to move with gentleness. So you have to be very, very careful. Men, you need to realize something. Real ministry is difficult. It's very difficult. You're going to work long hours and few people are going to appreciate it. You're going to try to live a holy life, but as a man, you will be fallible and there will be people there who have your life under a microscope in order to tear you apart on anything they can find. They're like a person who looks for a loose thread in your jacket and then pulls it, wanting to undo your entire coat. And that has a way of making us quarrelsome. Another thing that's very important is that if we want to avoid being bitter or quarrelsome, then we need to deal with issues as they come up. When someone has sinned against you, you need to deal with that issue instead of letting 10 offenses pile up so that you then explode. So we want to be gentle, peaceable, okay? Denotes a person who's not contentious or quarrelsome. He's not disposed to fighting. He doesn't look for fights. He doesn't start fights. The elder's disposition and actions should reflect Matthew 5, 9, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, peacemaker here is not the same as pacifist. He's not saying, blessed are those who never contend with anybody. This idea here is not a pacifist, but one who works or even fights for peace. And so, again, only the wisdom of God 
that comes to us by renewing our mind in the scriptures can enable us to discern when to fight and when to be at peace. I put here that the elder, biblical elder, will contend for the faith, but only when it is absolutely necessary. Will he fight? Now, go over for a minute to the book of Jude. I want to show you something. There's a very popular text that sometimes isn't explained well. Jude chapter 3. He says, or verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, look very carefully at what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm writing this whole letter so that you'll contend. This whole letter is about contending. My whole ministry is about contending. You must contend. You must contend. That's the uh, epicenter of my life. That's what motivates me. You must contend. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite. He said, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Where should most of your conversation be with regard to our common salvation? Do you see? That's where your conversation should be. That's what you should delight in. You shouldn't delight in finding places of contention every moment. But you should delight in talking about what we have in common. But when it is necessary, and it was necessary here, then you must contend earnestly for the faith. Now, here's another thing I want you to see. Everything in Scripture is important. Second coming is important. Eschatology is important. Whether or not there's a, a literal thousand-year millennium, whether or not there's a three-year tribulation, all these different things are important. And I never want to say that anything in the Bible is not important. It's all important. But if someone disagrees with me with regard to eschatology, but they are fully and completely within the uh, path of historic Christianity, I'm not going to be fighting with them all the time. When am I going to fight? When someone starts teaching something that is in direct contradiction to the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, I'm reading a, a, a book right now that goes farther than I would feel comfortable going in, in some of the, the metaphors of, of the book of Revelation. But I can tell you that I am gleaning so much good from that book. So I'm not going to throw the meat away and eat the bone, pick the bones. I'm going to pick out the bones and I'm going to eat the meat. But now if someone came to me with another doctrine of justification, that's something completely different. Then it's time to strap on your sword. Or someone is attacking the deity of Christ. Now all doctrine, again, is important. You need to define where you stand and you need to preach it. Yet at the same time, be very, very careful that you don't 
live a life of constantly contending, but that your great majority of your ministry has to do with promoting the common salvation of all Christians. I know some apologists, uh, a few of them that just seem, well, they call themselves apologists, and it seems like the only thing they want to do is fight. I know other apologists who, man, um, such a spirit of humility, strong when they need to be strong, wise, centered on the gospel, an absolute blessing to the church. So, even when we must fight, we will not give way to harshness, but will conduct ourselves in gentleness. Now again, this should be the normal course of our life, and yet there are times. I mean, you Paul, listen to Paul talk to the Judaizers. I wish you'd all go, <laughs> you know, go out and mutilate yourselves. That's pretty harsh. Our Jesus, referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes and the, and the lawyers as whitewashed tombs, as, as vipers. And so, again, brothers, there is a balance. But if that harsh language is just your common speech, um, you're in trouble. You, you, you've got some trouble. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, the Apostle Paul writes, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. And so, you know, again, I... Um, we live in a culture that demands the most extraordinarily extreme tolerance. That's not really tolerance at all. It's just a, a no longer standing for the truth. And so when I talk about being peaceable and gentle and, and not being pugnacious, I want us to be careful that we don't move outside. We don't. We need to be careful that we don't interpret these terms in light of 21st century culture in the West. There are times when you must stand. There are times when you must say difficult things. There are times when, well, we see in Scripture, in Paul, in Jesus, in John the Baptist, really hard language. We go to the prophets, sometimes extremely hard language. But those are at extreme times. I think that's very important. Now, in 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7, we have a really big qualification here. Must be free of the love of money. Now, this phrase is translated from a single Greek word, which literally means not a friend of or not a lover of silver. It denotes a person who is not greedy or covetous. Titus 1.7 adds, not fond of sordid gain, or not shamefully greedy for material gain. The elder must not use the ministry to gain wealth or luxury, but must be content 
The love of money is one of the greatest dangers that the elder must face. This is so true, brethren. And um, another thing that you need to realize is that. Let's say you become a well-known preacher. Just because people offer you money doesn't mean you need to take it. You need to put parameters up in your life to protect yourself from being carried away with regard to money. It can be a very, very dangerous thing. You ought to learn to be content. Just because it's offered to you doesn't mean you need to take it. It's very, very important. Now, I put the love of money is one of the greatest dangers that an elder must face. Paul writes, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Now, does it mean that all evil comes from the love of money? No, that's not what he means. He means all kinds of evils. Uh, a man loves money, so he steals. That's an evil. A man loves money, so he slanders. That's an evil. A man loves money, and so he murders. All sorts of evil, all sorts of sins spring forth from someone who loves money. Or loves comfort. Our loves <clears throat> luxury. Brothers, um, words like extravagance, luxury, and sensuality should not be seen in us. But simplicity, health, soundness, beauty, dignity, those are all appropriate words for a minister. But be very careful of luxury. Of course, many, most of you don't really have to worry about that problem. But even those who don't have a lot of money can be greedy for it. And it can eat away at them. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, um, 10 and 11, as I've said, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. That's true. That's true. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. A wrong step here and a wrong step there, and pretty soon you find that you have wandered. You have truly, truly wandered away from the faith. And then he says, and they pierce themselves with many griefs. There are so many men that because of their love for money. They've ruined their testimony. Or in their love for money, and I'm not just talking about ministers in their love for money, they made very uh, extraordinarily foolish decisions. They gambled with their family's savings not being content and eventually lose everything and pierce themselves with many griefs, but flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from them. Run away from them. 
Make sure that you're held accountable with regard to them. Very important. Very important. Now, let's go to uh, 1 Timothy 3.4. He manages his own household well. The word manages comes from the Greek verb, which means to stand before or preside over or supervise or rule. Um, so many ministers and so many fathers, and, and oftentimes because they work so hard outside of the family, that they delegate everything in the family to their wife. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Not that she's not capable. She may be more capable than you, but in time there will be resentment. There will be great resentment. Your devotion to the ministry does not give you the right to drop the ball with regard to your household. This is extremely important to understand. And one of the things that can accentuate this temptation is if you have, like I do, a very strong and capable wife. My wife is an extremely strong person. She's the kind of person that's kind of like, you know, <laughs> get going or get out of the way or don't worry about it. I can handle this. And that's good. That's very good. But be, be very, very careful. You do not abuse that. That you do not abuse that. It is your job to manage your household to some degree. So he goes on and he says, the elder must manage his home in accordance with the precepts of the scriptures and his home life must reflect the blessing that results from his wise management. You know, if you if if uh, a company's not doing well and the boss shows up, he's not going to go talk to the the people who are working on the assembly line. He's going to go talk to his managers. And those managers, it doesn't matter what they say, they're responsible. They can't pass the blame to anyone else because it was their job to manage the rest of the staff and that's kind of the way it is with us it is our job to manage I see all these men you know that want to act like a big gorilla and beat their chest and talk about how they lead their home and all this kind of stuff well you better be very very careful because you, you need to realize that if you are the one who is to lead your home you're also the one that's supposed to serve the most, go to bed the most tired, and the one who will one day stand before Christ and have to give an answer. Never forget that our leadership in the home is service unto God, service unto our wives, and service unto our children, and never service unto ourselves. We're the ones who are supposed to go to bed tired. When you come home, you do not sit in your chair as king as everyone around you serves you. But you come home to serve also. And you say, well, when do I get to rest? When you die. You're the one that was beating at your chest, so here, here's what comes along with that. It's service taking care of God's daughter and God's children. That's your job. And if you can't be faithful in that, then you're, you can't be given the office of elder. Now, 
The logic behind this requirement is set forth in 1 Timothy 3.5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If you can't manage your house with just a few people in it, how can you manage the church that may have 50, 75, 100, 200, 2,000? How are you going to manage that? And so, very important. Now, um, we're going to look at, at one other that is very, very important. And that is, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, keeps his children under control <laughs> with all diligence. This is one of the results of the elder's biblical management of his family, but it deserves to be treated uh, separately because it's so important, your relationship to your children. Now, the word control denotes submissiveness and obedience, that your children should obey their parents. This is right in the sight of God. They should um, live in an attitude of submissiveness to their parents. But there's a word here that's very important, the word dignity, the word dignity. He says here in verse four, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control, but with all dignity. It is difficult to determine, I've written here, whether the word dignity describes the elder's management of his children or his children's response to his management. Since the context has to do with the requirements of an elder, the former interpretation is preferred. And what is that? The elder is to maintain control of his children. Now listen very carefully. In a gracious and dignified manner. Not with manipulation. Intimidation. Outbursts of anger. Or physical abuse. This is very, very important. Let me share something with you. I have my 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 smallest boy is six foot three. And he can fight like the. The last monkey trying to get on the ark and it's raining. I mean, he, he's a he's a strong boy. My older son is six five. And he could just about take me when he was 13. Now, the point I'm trying to make is this. When your children are young, yeah, you want to go ahead. You can bully them. But sooner or later, the table's going to turn. And they'll bully you back. And you'll have created a bitter, angry child. A, a, a really good rule here is just because your children are young does not mean you can treat them with less dignity. Treat them as you would any other person who is made in the image of God. Yes, there must be rules in your home. Yes, they must be given work to do. Yes, there must also be discipline, but it is to be done with dignity. With dignity. Be very careful of our facial expressions. Be very careful of the words we speak, demeaning words that crush. Being very careful with what kind of discipline. 
And you need to know something. As a child grows, discipline needs to change. I hear men boasting about how they, you know, they spanked their 15-year-old son. And I think there's some problems. There comes a time where that type of discipline, it's just embarrassing and demeaning. You need to find, as they grow, different ways of disciplining. And also you need to know something. If you teach and discipline when they are young, if you do it on the front end, you won't have to do it near as much on the back end. Also, if you create a relationship with your child, you will not have to discipline near as much. It's, it's very, very important. I knew a man who, uh, he said, um, you know, my, my boys, they were rascals. <laughs> he goes, they were, they were something. And um, I said, what'd you do? He said, I came up with an idea. He goes, I went to the hardware store. Do you know what that is? It's, I went to the hardware store, and he goes, I bought, I don't know what it was, something like an entire pallet, you know, a meter wide, a, a, a meter long, uh, two meters high of big cinder blocks. And I put them on one side of the yard, and I put an empty pallet on the other. And when they got out of hand, I told, would tell them, go out in the yard, move all those pallets, to, move all those bricks to the empty pallet, and when you're done, move them all back. He had another, he said one of his sons, he goes, you know what I had him do? He was such a rascal. He goes, every time he would disobey his mom or something like that, I would have him do push-ups, pull-ups, set-ups, and, and, and air squats. And he said that boy was so disobedient that when he joined the Marines, he won every competition in physical fitness. <laughs> now, l- let me share with you something about, uh, I'm going to read through this, and then I want to take you to a very important text. Um, the elder is to maintain control of his children in a dignified and gracious manner, not with manipulation, intimidation, outbursts of anger, physical abuse, In other words, as in Ephesians 6, 4, he's not to provoke his children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now notice, discipline and instruction. If there's no instruction, there shouldn't be any discipline. If the father uses carnal means to manage his own children, he is likely to do the same with the church. Titus 1, 6 having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, this is what Titus adds to 1 Timothy. And it's caused a little bit of confusion among a lot of people because he says an elder must have children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, the meaning of the phrase having children who believe is debated, and I think you can see why. If a man has children and they're not, they're not Christians, does that mean he can't be an elder? And if they must be Christians, at what age must they be a Christian? Because no time is placed here. So what does it mean? Now, there are godly men who disagree with me on this point. Okay? 
But this is what um, I've come to understand about this text. The meaning of the phrase having children who believe is debated. Is Paul demanding that an elder's children be genuine believers or that they merely be faithful that is well trained and submissive to their father? I believe the latter interpretation is to be uh, favored. And here's why. The word believers is translated from the Greek adjective pistos, which may also be translated faithful, faithful children. The word faithful would be an appropriate contrast to dissip dissipation, which is reckless living and rebellion. So that would it would form the counter to what a child is not supposed to be. A child's not supposed to be given to drunkenness, wildness, and rebellion, but rather be faithful. Third, a faithful father may ensure, reasonably, may ensure that his children are well-trained, respectful, and submissive, but a faithful father cannot ensure their conversion. If I properly raise my children, I cannot make them Christians. I cannot coerce them. I can't even manage them well into making them Christians. But I can live before them and teach in such a way that they are submissive. They're not rebellious. They're not doing horrific things. Now, this is referring also to children that are living in my home are living in a minister's home. Because in his home, he is to lead. But when that child grows up and moves outside of that home, if that child falls into debauchery or other things, that's the question then is this, is that debauchery was that caused by ongoing faults in the father? You say, well, of course it was. Not necessarily. I have seen children become diamonds who were born in a family that acted like a trash can. And I have seen children that were raised in godly homes that became God-hating. The question is, while in that man's home, is he managing them correctly? If their rebellion is the result of of his inability to manage them, then he does not qualify as one who would manage God's people. Okay? I think that is what is going on here. Um, and, and there are those who, who disagree with me on this, and I, both sides are still within historical Christianity, and the text is written in such a way that it does make it difficult to discern, okay? But these are, I think, very, very important truths. When we, when we come back next time, we will start with uh, not a new convert. And uh, we can learn this the easy way or the hard way, but trust me, be very, very careful putting a young man in the ministry, even if he's an exceptional young man. Um, it is a very, very, be careful that you're not throwing babes to wolves.
because it is a very difficult thing to enter into that. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then if we have any questions, I'd be glad to entertain them. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray, dear God, that you would use all of this in the life of your people. Dear God, help these ministers. Help me that we might always, Lord, qualify for the ministry to which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen.